This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Audio Book Club is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash slateabc. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club. I'm David Hagland, editor at Slate, and I'm here with Megan O'Rourke. Hello, Megan. Hi, David. And Emily Bazelon. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. Hey, Megan. And we're going to be talking about Ender's Game, the sci-fi classic, I think is maybe not too strong a word, uh, first published in 1985. As always on the Audiobook Club, we're going to be talking about the plot in detail, so you should read the book first. And that's especially true, I think, with this edition of the Slate Audiobook Club, because Ender's Game is a book heavy on plot. There are even some twists near the end, so uh, go read it. Fortunately, I think given the book's popularity, a lot of our listeners probably already have read it. I thought maybe we could start our conversation by finding out which of us had read it before. This is a book that's at least partly targeted to young people. I had had it recommended to me before a couple of times, but had had never read it until a couple of weeks ago. What about you guys? Megan? I think I read it in high school, I can't quite remember when I read it, but it would have been not that long after the book came out, probably in the early 90s. And it was really different reading it this time, which I'm sure we'll get into. But I remember reading it just in like kind of one big gulp and, and really being horrified and very moved by the end, which didn't strike me as powerfully this time. I right. Yeah. But so you did like it as a teenager. I did like it as a teenager. And did you read other books sort of roughly in this category, other sci-fi books? I did read a lot of sci-fi. More fantasy probably. But no, I did read a lot of sci-fi. And my brother and I both did. And I think my brother actually read this first and said, oh, you have to read this. What about you, Emily? I didn't read it as a child. I don't even think I've really heard about it until a couple of years ago when my kids read it. And their primary activity for Ender's Game is comparing Ender, the hero, to Harry Potter and <laughs> the heroine of the Hunger Games and any other kind of child superpower figure to see, like, who would win in a duel. Nice. <laughs> What's so interesting about this book, actually, is how different Ender is as a kind of 
protagonist from a Harry Potter or Will from Dark is the Rising or what's her name? Katrin Katniss, Katniss. from yeah. The Hunger Games, which I've only read part of. Anyway, we'll get into that. But he's so different. I was sort of struck by how different this book is from other books. Well, that, I, I want to hear yeah. about why you think he was different, Megan. Well, the whole plot, I guess, right? The, the struggle that Ender goes through, which is the struggle of, am I my brother, Peter? So Ender has this brother, Peter, who is uh, quite violent and manipulative and ends up playing a very powerful role in the plot as the boys grow older. But Ender's struggle is so interior, and it's not, I have to go do these things, but it's, am I a killer? Right. And he's a tool of these people in the military. And he is on a quest in a certain way, the way that, you know, Harry is on a quest or Will is on a quest. But in those books, and you know, even think about Luke Skywalker, there's like a moment of confrontation with, am I being turned to the dark side? But the confrontation here is constant. And right. it's kind of the only drama that there is in this book. And it's a really dark book. Yeah, let's lay out some of the plot. Because yeah. I agree, and I think that's one of the most interesting things, maybe the most interesting thing about the book is that that sort of strange darkness that it has. So Ender, when we begin, he's, what, seven or eight years old? Even, even younger. Littler. I think he's, he's five. really little in the beginning. The very, I think he's okay. not quite six, yeah, or even maybe younger. And we know he's he's being monitored. He has this thing in, in his neck or in his back or something. Yeah. that so, It's a chip, David. A chip. Yeah, actually. So, okay, we, we should get into some of the prescience of, of this book yeah. too. But first, so he's he's being monitored in some way by these authorities whose voices we hear at the beginning of most chapters. And we don't always know who's speaking. But they're watching him to see whether he's talented enough to then go to this training school, this you know military school, because – you know, human beings are are in a war against this other race, which are called the buggers. Which unfortunately, uh, yeah, that word choice. I kept calling them boogers, and my kids kept correcting me. But even buggers is not that much better. What's I would say that? it's I would say it's distinctly worse because if you followed the controversy at all surrounding the movie, which is coming out November first, and which we should acknowledge right. is is you know really the reason we're doing this now. You know, Card is really virulently homophobic. Yeah. And bugger right. is, is a derogatory slang for homosexual, right. especially right. in England. But I think that meaning has some currency yeah. here. Yeah. And as we learn eventually, and here's the first kind of big spoiler, I suppose, the name in theory derives from the bug-like nature of this race, right? They're sort of yeah. insectoid. <laughs> so that's why they're called buggers. But all I could think about was that Card is a homophobe and he's called the alien race buggers. <laughs> So anyway, yeah, so the, we're they're at war against this alien race, and Ender is selected to go to the school, and then much of the novel is is taken up with his training at the school, and then the showdown. Then there's this twist at the end, which we'll get to. But that's sort of the very basic storyline. He has a, his brother Peter, who Megan mentioned, who's who's sort of sinister. He has a sister Valentine that he loves, and then he has various sort of allies and rivals at the school as as he advances. Um, one called Bonzo. Bonzo. Bonzo, right. We get the <laughs> a Spanish uh Spanish rival. And then this uh Colonel Graf who kind of oversees his development along the way. Is and any... basically the question of the book is can Ender save the world as we know it? And can he do so without losing himself? Right. I think that the two go hand in hand. And the other thing that we should say about the structure of the book is that, you know, as you were saying, David, it's we're watching Ender be schooled in this kind of military camp where all the most talented, you know, children, I guess they're militarily talented. We're not sure what the criteria for talent here is, but are you know, kind of plucked off earth and taken away to some place where they train. 
And so it's from a kind of close third person of Ender's point of view, but then interspersed with that are these conversations that I thought were really formally effective, these kind of unattributed conversations between military figures who are arguing over how they're kind of treating Ender and what their kind of protocols should be for creating a master warrior. You know, so I have only read the first Harry Potter book. What? (laughs) Sorry. Well, so not only that, so I read it, you know, when I was in my early 20s, you know, it had become such a phenomenon. And my experience reading that book was this is clearly a book for children and I have no interest in reading the rest of these, these books. And I think Ender's Game is also probably most gripping a read for someone in their early teens or, you know, say. But it was way more interesting to me. And a lot of it was the fact that you never really get a strong handle on whether the manipulation that is going on that Ender is experiencing is morally justified. Yeah. And he doesn't feel ever totally at peace with that. Yeah. Emily, did you uh, feel that as well? I did. I mean, what blocked me from really loving this book is the quality of the writing. I'm sorry. I mean, there's just some incredibly wooden, clunky dialogue in here that I kept having to just wade my way through. I do think, though, that all of the elements you're both identifying make it a really pretty gripping and also, in a way, complex story. And that's what makes it kind of transcend its genre, right? So for me, it wasn't just the sometimes wooden prose, but also all of the battle scenes. You know, there's so much of the book is Ender and and his sort of buddies or enemies you know, practicing battles and you get very detailed descriptions of their strategies. And a lot of the book is taken up with that. And you pretty much know from early on that he's always going to win. And none (laughs) of the... But it's how he wins, David, (laughs) not if he's going to win. It's funny. I was was talking with our colleague, Forrest Wickman, who read this book when he was young, and he remembered those scenes as his favorite. I actually really yeah, love those scenes. Yeah, my 10-year-old. <laughs> yes, me too. And my 10-year-old was super into them. Yeah. So I think that Card knows his yeah. audience there. I mean, I have to say, I found this book incredibly agonizing to read. And I, I don't know whether it was just that I blocked it out, but I don't remember being so agonized by the bleakness of this book's view of childhood. And actually, Emily, I kept thinking about you because so much of this book is actually about bullying. You know, mm-hmm. and it's about violence that kids commit onto others. So there's this kind of morally ambiguous, you know, quote unquote violence that you could say the military officers are doing to Ender by kind of thrusting him into this world and pushing him really past what he feels is he's capable of. But then there's this actually quite concrete violence of which seems like one of the things that Card is primarily interested in here is the violence of humans toward one another and children toward one another. And the buggers end up being in a kind of important vehicle for exploring that violence in in different ways, which we can talk about. But Ender ends up making friends, but he, you know, kills several boys, right? I mean, we're going to give away things here, right? And he... Well, and we should say he doesn't realize that he's actually killed these kids until later in the book. Right. And I mean, he kind of knows and kind of doesn't, and he's horrified by it, but he's pushed into these scenarios where it's a kind of dog-eat-dog. This is literally a, right, not literally, but it is a dog-eat-dog world. 
Yes, um, it's very Lord of the Flies. Yeah. And it's a revenge fantasy for the victim of bullying. And then the other thing that really struck me is when he first arrives at the school, the adults set him up to be bullied mm-hmm. by making it clear that he is the special anointed one. Right. And he realizes he's being set up but is stuck with the consequences. And that was actually like quite an amazing depiction of how adults sometimes create these inequities between children, which the kids then act out violently. I think that's what makes the book work is that Card does a really good job of giving you how little and childlike Ender is in certain ways, but then his kind of supernatural awareness and, you know, sophistication as a battle commander. There are moments where you're like, this kid is not eight years old. Like, there's certain dialogue where you're like, how could he? But then that's part of the the fantasy here, right? But that, to me, was one of the really interesting things about this book. It's a very philosophical book, or trying to be. Yeah, and it has a complicated view of the hero's role, possibly as opposed to Harry Potter and The Hunger Games, which, like I said, I don't really know those books. But, you know, he's being cordoned off in a way by the people training him. They set him apart so that he can become this hero knowing that he needs to be a solitary person. And that seems to me different from, you know, what you expect from a young adult book, say. This idea that being a hero is a complicated and unpleasant fate, really. I would say that the parallel of The Hunger Games is really strong. I kept thinking about it. Katniss Everdeen, who's the main character in that book, she has uh, one real solid friend. And then she has her kind of ambivalent relationship with Peta, who's – yeah, I think I'm saying that right – who's the other kind of main male figure in the book. But she's pretty solitary. And then I guess Harry is different because he is always surrounded by his two best friends. But the idea of wrestling with your inner evil is in the Harry Potter books as well, right? Because by the later books, which, David, you apparently have not gotten to, it's all about whether Harry is basically like harboring the evil Voldemort inside him. But what's so interesting about this is that's the whole book, right? Like here it's yes. the whole – there's really nothing else. This is what the book is. Like it's very explicitly, am I Peter? Am I not Peter? And it, almost to a repetitive extent, right? Right. I mean, I you know, one thing that I was interested in was – David, you mentioned how prescient this book is in some ways. And a lot of this book is about gaming. You know, one of the ways that they train is they kind of play these virtual games and he has this kind of floating – they all have floating desks where they can play certain – kind of, you know, adventure games. And and one of the things that happens in this book is Ender becomes very preoccupied with this one game where he has to kill certain figures and he gets this giant he has to figure out how to kill and it becomes a very haunting problem for him. Like, how do I kill this giant and what happens afterward? And as soon as I started reading that again, it was like the hairs on my neck stood up. And that part of it was very haunting to me when I think I was, when I was 16. And it was interesting reading. Now, like, that was, I thought, one of the most successful parts of the book. And that part of the book is just purely about Ender's confrontation with his own violence or, you know, becoming the tool that the military wants him to be in order to save the world from the buggers. And the question always is, is it worth it? Yeah, no, Um, I I agree. That was, for me, some of the most interesting stuff in the book. And it's this, the passages are very dreamlike. mm -hmm. Even the... Very Jungian, isn't it? Yeah, Mm -hmm. completely. And even the people who, you know, have put the game in place for him to use you know, there's some way that they have programmed it so they don't they don't actually control it completely. It's like right. tapped into Ender's mind somehow. And when he kills this giant, it's so violent and even gross. There's this line about the 
way that the eye feels to him as he's sort of ripping Mm -hmm. it apart. It's disgusting. And then when he sees him, you know, he sees Peter looking back at him in the mirror and thinks, oh, I've become him. And there are these snakes. I thought those passages were riveting to me in a way that, say, this this sort of strategy stuff was was not. Right. Right. It's the central myth of the book, that game, and the way in which it's turning Ender's own dreams and nightmares in on him and using them against him, but also they are the vehicle for his freedom, too. It's really well done. To call it a metaphor is almost too much. It's like the main dreamscape of the book. You said the central myth, which seems so perfect to me. That is, it's kind of everything revolves around that. We'll continue our discussion in a moment, but first let's pause for a word from our sponsor, Audible.com. Audible is the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the Internet. You can choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks and listen to them on nearly any device, including the one you're using to listen to us right now. Audible has a special offer for audiobook club listeners. When you sign up for a 30-day free trial membership, you'll get one free audiobook of your choice. Just visit our special URL, audiblepodcast.com slash slateabc. What will that free book be? Here at the Audio Book Club, we like to recommend our next club selection, which is Bleeding Edge by Thomas Pynchon. And you're in luck because the audio version of Bleeding Edge is read by the wonderful actress Jeannie Berlin. Your Audible membership also includes a free subscription to either the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So give it a try today, and please use our URL so Audible knows you're an Audio Book Club listener. audiblepodcast.com slash slateabc. You know, I guess we should also talk about Valentine and Peter, right? Because back on Earth, they hatched this very preposterous plot. Right. And it, this is another part of the book that felt weirdly prescient because right. so the book was published in 1985. And it has all these references to the nets. Right. It's the internet. It's the internet. It's the internet. Yeah, the internet. It's kind of amazing. Really, yeah. Because he gets exactly the way it works. I mean, what you were about to say, Megan, I think, was that Peter and Valentine create these anonymous persona. They each have one. He is Locke and she is Demosthenes. And they have this very heated political dialogue as a way of gaining influence because then all these people start following them and citing them. And eventually they rise to the top of government. They even as become these anonymous opinion children. columnists. Right. <laughs> yes. I mean, not only They're the David Brooks and Ida right. Dion of their time. Exactly. He not only saw the World like Wide 10. Web coming, yeah, but he also saw how well opinion and anger would do right. on and online. And also that children could be its most sophisticated manipulators, possibly. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Anger, rage, right. Baiting, basically baiting, troll baiting in yeah. a certain way. Yeah. And you know, and political writing. So I liked those passages a lot as well. In fact, one of the disappointments for me of the book was that they sort of fade from view for a long stretch. Yeah. And there's this maybe borderline paranoid vision of world politics that is emerging early B- on. Borderline? <laughs> so what I mean by maybe <laughs> borderline is maybe it's just talk yeah, about this. <laughs> straightforwardly paranoid. Um, you know, in that Peter is this sort of Hitler-esque figure. The right. parallel is, is made explicitly at one point. And when the book begins... It's sort of a Cold War detente yeah. phase. Apparently, Carter, there's a pact. So everyone yeah. is a band together. Pact. The Warsaw yeah. Pact. Everyone's band together against the buggers. But there is this sense of fragility and this looming threat that if the buggers were to be defeated, it's actually a very relevant book for today in a certain way. I kept thinking about this, but that there is this sense of um, unanimity and excitement and like fighting off the you know in the kind of worldism right. We're fighting off the buggers, but it creeps in more and more into the book is this realization that that's a very precarious alliance and that the vision of the book that is kind of maybe realistic 
is that, you know, once there's not an enemy to commonly unite against, everyone will, you know, resume warfare. And then that and Peter, becomes more paranoidly kind of inflected. Go ahead. Deb. Yeah, sorry. Emily. Right. No, I, that's right. And Peter is essentially breaking down the old world order and trying to build up the new one in which he would be this dominant force. But he's sort of more benevolent than Hitler in the end, or at least you're not quite sure. It's possible that he's changed enough that he could be the benevolent despot. Yeah, and this that is, was never yeah. clear to me, actually. Right, I know. And, yeah, it and it's goes another, back and forth. It's another way I think that the book complicates your expectations in in ways that are fairly interesting yeah. because you really expect Peter to become Hitler, and yeah. and he doesn't really. Yeah. And instead, the book does this very odd thing at the end. Where it takes a turn for the religious, mm. right? And Ender becomes a prophet-like figure who's written these books called the Speaker of the Dead, Speaker mm-hmm. for the Dead. Mm-hmm. And I think it's worth talking about those, although there's still some more we should probably get at first. Get at yeah. first. One of them is that this is a big, you know, twist, I suppose, that we haven't discussed is that the games that they're playing are not games. At the end. Yeah. But even once I he mean, moves no, I don't think from the beginning. Not the from the very bar- last one the, the, is the real. when he goes to the yeah. second school. Right? Yes, all I think all of the real. ones at the second school. But there are a series at the second school right. that lead up to the big final battle. Right. So I think in the initial school, he's just in training. And then when he goes to the second one, he thinks he's still in training. But in right. fact, he's fighting and, and killing the buggers. And after they, you know, he finally blows up this planet. And the whole idea is he's that... He's set up with this impossible task, which is what's happened all the way along. You know, they've given him, you know, he'll be fighting with his crew. And then they'll suddenly send two crews against him in training school. But then, right, the final battle, which we should just mention is... You know, he's hopelessly outnumbered and he thinks that they're being manipulative to him and he's been having horrible nightmares and he's kind of on the verge of a nervous breakdown because he feels they've put so much pressure on him. And so he looks out at this array of ships and he's like, well, they've told him not to use this very special machine that's kind of like nuclear, you know, it's kind of like a nuclear nuclear weapon on steroids and it's capable of destroying all the molecules around. Like it's sucking. I, I couldn't, the science was a little beyond me. But uh, anyway, he has been told not to use it on the planet, but then he decides to do so anyway as a kind of act of rebellion. And it turns out to be a real planet that he destroys full of real people. Right. And but, part but of he needed yeah. to do that in order to save in order to win. humanity. Yeah. And part of the idea being that there, you know, there are a few things here. One, that he would only have made that decision if he thought he was playing a game. Right. Right. Which made me think of drone warfare and the fact that simulations mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. are closer and closer to what actual warfare is. But also that they needed to find a child who could empathize with the buggers so that he could think like them, but then was still willing to kill them off, not realizing that he was actually killing them all off. So it's this very, you know, sort of murky moral situation that the book sets up. And that's partly why afterwards Ender is still tortured by what he's done. He doesn't actually feel good about the fact that he saved humanity. Instead, he feels really bad that he killed billions of these insect-like creatures on the other hand, because they're insect-like creatures, our own empathy for them sort of only extends so far. Right. Especially oh, you think? The- I felt like toward the end we were supposed to understand that they were actually this kind and gentle race that right. had only accidentally decimated the human population. And his whole future as a prophet will be to try to bring their good word and to somehow resurrect their species because he's like carrying the last egg. Right. Right. No, exactly. I think you are meant to ultimately 
realize that. it's funny you know when i read it the first time i was horrified by that you know revelation like really horrified and this time i wasn't so much and i just thought wow is that the cynicism of aging or is <laughs> or is that because i went through those emotions once before but there is something very funny about the end because we have this climactic moment and realization and then the book has to go on for a little bit in order not to end in that place but the whole like last chapter or two feels very fable like right i mean there's a sort of remove yeah, it um, shifts into a whole different mode. Yeah. So if you think about how much detail there is in those battle scenes where yeah. he's describing the movement of their hands and legs and the you know little nooks and crannies of this room where they're training. And then I think similarly with the uh, video game, you know, sort of fairy tale like descriptions of the giant and you know the cave at the end of the world and all of that. That's also in a different register. And then the ending is definitely in a different register where years pass in a sentence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's this kind of uh, – he says that this text that Ender writes becomes a religion and, you know, but, you know, all of these things happen very, very quickly. And it does feel like a fable. But yeah. it is also clearly somehow essential to Card's view of this book, I think. Oh, absolutely. But Ender, I think, can't grow up. Really, right. not as a full-fledged three-dimensional character if right. he is that earlier. And so the only way to have him be adult is to essentially turn into this weird at 40,000 feet kind of writing, right. which you're absolutely right, David, is very different from most of the book. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important, you know, just going back to what we were just saying about Peter and how he never quite becomes Hitler. You know, I've understood the reason that he never becomes Hitler is that Ender doesn't go back to Earth after this climactic battle scene. And so, I mean, this is another way that this book feels very different from Harry Potter or these other, or The Dark is Rising, right? Which is that, especially because this book was initially intended to be just a solo story, it wasn't going to have sequels, which it which now, now does, it has lots of. Which now it has lots of. But, you know, in those other kinds of stories, when you come to the culminating moment in the final volume, there's real restoration of order, which there ultimately is of a kind here, but it's a very bittersweet restoration because Ender does this, he becomes a hero, but it's deemed too dangerous for him to go back to Earth because he would become a pawn of Peter who now has total control and the Warsaw Pact is breaking apart and whatever. He's named himself, what is it called? The Hegemon? Yeah. It's all a little allegorical. Anyway, he can't go home and he's sort of trapped in this depressing way station out in space, which was actually created by the buggers. And he's sort of depressed. And then finally what happens is Valentine comes to him and they go off and they settle a colony. And that's where he finds the last egg of the buggers and becomes a prophet. But it's a, you know, it's it's not that clean, tidy restoration of order. You know, not that you find a tidy restoration of order in these other books. Obviously in Harry Potter, there's a lot of terrible deaths and all of that. But there's a little more optimism in these books. This is a darker philosophical imperative, I think. Yeah, I, mean, I was thinking about it in relation to his Dark Materials, the Philip yeah. Pullman trilogy, yeah. which also, double, triple spoiler alert, ends with the two main children protagonists going back to their separate worlds. And so order has been restored, I think, but they cannot be together, even right. though clearly they should be. And it's a different kind of disjuncture, but it also has a really tragic feeling to it. That's interesting. Different philosophically, but similar feeling of rupture. 
That's yeah. another uh, book that has been recommended to me more than once that I, that I haven't read. Is, is oh, my God. You oh, those are, are like amazing. A delinquent. You're I can't delinquent. believe that we are having this conversation with you <laughs> and you turn out to have only read grown-up literature. I'm going to put together I, a reading list for you, David. <laughs> I was not – to be honest, in a confession, I was not a big reader of books when I was a kid. I liked, So I, you just need to have your own kids. Not that I'm right. mean to be pushing that on you generally. But when you do, you have lots of treats in store books. for you. Yeah. Well, so and the, I will draw you up a list. The one thing I know about Pullman is that he's rather famously an atheist, yeah. right? And yeah. that he had in his mind when he wrote those books that he was doing something different than, say, C.S. Lewis yes. when he wrote the Narnia books right. or Tolkien. But Pullman's big complaint really is established religion as opposed right. to – I think there's okay. a lot of actually God and faith in those books that is allowed to shine through. He's super against establishment and institutions. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, so I was reading uh, Ender's Game – partly with an eye toward anything that seems vaguely Mormon because I grew up Mormon and I that was this was the one thing I knew about Card going in. He, in fact, wrote a straight-up sci-fi version of the Book of Mormon at one point. I forget, no way. Yeah, I, I forget what that one is called. Hmm. So I was That's looking for – That's not like heretical? <laughs> no, crazy. in fact, yeah, no. And, you know, by and large, many Mormons – are fans of his. I mean, he definitely right. has a, has a following. So is he practicing more? Yes. Than, yeah. Okay. And quite conservative, right? right. So he's well, yeah. you know, socially very conservative. Yeah. I mean, he's become pretty fringy uh, yeah. in his politics. I mean, I referred to the the paranoia before, but he's yeah. he's still you know he writes political columns as well. And they're really out there. I kind of and felt we the fringiness recent... in this book, too, right? That's right? the thing. I was like, sort of yes. waiting for the Peter yeah. stuff to emerge a little more fully because it seemed like that's where it was going was some right. kind of sort of horrible vision of the New World Order and, you know, all of the ways people talk about Obama, you know, on right. the far, far right, right as this sort of, you know, wannabe messianic character who's actually, you know, the devil, essentially. I was waiting for that to happen right. in this book and it didn't quite, although there are a number of other things I mean, Ender is fairly Christ-like, you know, as someone who is chosen to sacrifice himself on some level to save humanity. Yeah. He also is a bit Joseph Smith-like yeah. in that Joseph Smith's first visions came when he was very young mm. uh, and he was ultimately martyred. He's also a bit like the sort of initial protagonist of the Book of Mormon is this man named Nephi who has an evil older brother. Actually, oh. I can't remember if he's older or younger, but he has an evil That's brother. That's actually really interesting. Yeah. That and is then probably a source for this. I kind of imagine, although it's also yeah. you know, sort of Cain and Abel-ish. Right. But then Nephi kills this king called Laban, and it's for Mormons this kind of key moral parable because he has to kill him for the good of his people, but murder oh. is wrong. Oh, that's, that's exactly so that's, it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, you know, okay, you're welcome back to the conversation. <laughs> that's, that's the sort of thing that I was looking for. So it's interesting that the book takes this religious turn at the end. Right. Because that religion is sort of vaguely mystical and, yeah. and not, you know, so Though much. Though very like, Christian in its original sense of kind of love beyond the self, right? I mean, I did feel like he kind of has these dream visions of the bugger speaking to him. And he, as you were saying, Emily, he sees the warmth of them and the gentleness of the race. They kind of accidentally tried to kill a lot of humans. <laughs> that part's a little Oops. like fudged over. I was, I was a little, yes. um, but, uh, and so then he basically becomes the speaker for the dead, right? I mean, he, he advocates and represents them. He writes some book. It's all a little unclear because it is at that 40,000 foot level, but, um, or not unclear, but just vague, left, Gauzy. Unfilled out. Gauzy, yes. Yeah. That seemed that – think of that gesture of empathizing completely with the other did seem kind of, you know, 
like some of Christ's original sermons, you know, not exactly how Christianity as an institution has behaved, but yeah, but no, the vision, I, the right. vision. I think yeah. that's right. And the I visionary also think it, quality. it matters too that Ender's being brought up before he goes off to military hell school. He's being brought up in the United States of America in which religion has been completely repressed. I mean, right. this really is a right wing fantasy, like separation of church and state gone berserk. But his parents have some kind of secret continuing Christian practice. And he has like these vague memories of being prayed over as a small child. And that endows him right. with some kind of strength right. and a way of connecting with the best friend he makes right. who has some like right. little bits of Muslim religion and hidden in his background. It's probably no accident, too. I wasn't thinking of this in context of Card's politics. You know, this is also a world in which the government has decreed that no third children are allowed. And if you do have a third child, that third child becomes property of the government as Ender himself is. He's a third. And so there is a whole kind of libertarian struggle here. Of That's why Ender can be shipped off to this colony, because he's a third. He is right. the property of the government to do with as they wish. Yeah. And, and in fact, Emily, you mentioned the religiosity of his parents. We're told specifically that his father is Catholic and his mother is Mormon. And oh, right. That's there right. you go. Yeah. Yeah. But they have to practice it in secret. And, right. and yeah, it is absolutely this sort of right-wing vision that also probably owes something to our notions of, say, communist China, where mm-hmm. there are restrictions on how many children you can have. Yeah, can we just say that, that Ender's parents are completely rotten? They're they terrible. don't care that he leaves. They completely withdraw. They're kind withdraw. of relieved. <laughs> oh, it's just dreadful. Sorry, Megan, I interrupted no, you. No, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you said that. That's what I mean. There's something very dark about this book, right? I mean, those the parents are really not the traditional kind of parents you see, which usually there's a dead parent, but there's something, you know, kind of beautiful about the memory. But here the parents are just a little distant. Ender him callous. Yeah. And Ender himself does not have strong feelings toward them. It's really just to Valentine, his sister. Right. Um, And even the surrogate father, Colonel Graff, is a very morally ambiguous character at best who Ender's relationship with him is not one of oh, you know, you're my substitute father and I love you. It's not that right. at all. No, Graf he gets trying really... to get him almost killed, basically. Right. And he becomes morbidly obese. I wonder I know. if Harrison Ford is going to end up getting super fat in the movie. Because I think it's Harrison Ford that's playing him, at least. I saw Harrison Ford in the trailer. That seemed like the obvious role that, for him. That would make sense. It's got to be him. I'm yeah. wondering how much they're going to change the story. I wonder that, too. And in fact, I think it's 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 fair to take a, a few minutes yes, here at the absolutely. end to speculate. just speculate about the movie, which, you know, it comes out November 1st. And for one thing, so I mentioned the enemies being called the buggers. And given all of the controversy that has led up. I mean, if people haven't followed this, you know, some sci-fi fans have said they're going to boycott yeah, the movie. Yeah, there's a whole movement yeah. to boycott it. And, and Clark said some pretty... He said some know, horrible things. I, in fact, yeah. may not see the movie because he's pretty out there. And he made this very stiff statement after the Supreme Court took a step toward legalizing gay marriage over the summer. He said, well, it will be interesting to see if the people who are demanding tolerance are tolerant of those of us who have. And it just was really. Well, and it fits into that, you know, notion that you see on the, you know, Christian right that we're the persecuted ones and our religion is not allowed in the public square and and all of that. I think he definitely fits in there on the political spectrum. But there's also one of the most awkward things for me about the book besides the whole buggers thing. The buggers problem. (laughs) Yeah, besides the buggers problem is is that the kids at the training school have this slang that they speak to each other at the school that is clearly modeled on black slang. Yeah. 
And it's so awkward. It's a very weird part of the book. And it's... I really hope they don't keep that in the movie. I don't think They've you could publish this book. And they're never going to have that in the movie. And I don't think you could publish this book today with that black slang. Yeah. They've got to change the slang. They've got to change the ending somehow, I think. I mean, in the sense that it will be more optimistic. You know, it might be true to what happens, but there'll be a more optimistic vision of it, I would think. I don't right. think it's going to be as dark Maybe there's tone. a later book they can pull some other right. ending from. Well, and I suspect that they'll want to set it up for a possible sequel, right? In right. case the movie does right. well. And I haven't – has either of you read uh, any of the subsequent books? No. Simon, my 10-year-old, has read them all and <laughs> claims that some of them are really boring and some of them he liked. The one he liked the best was actually a whole alternate story giving the history of one of the other kids at the school whose name might be Bean. Oh, Maybe Bean was, a good, Bean was yeah. a good character. Yeah. 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 Well, that one, Simon liked that book. Yeah. Some of the other ones, I think he said basically like The Speaker for the Dead is not – an action-packed book so much as, you know, more speechifying and travels. It seems like that's a direction that Card could go. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know I, mean? like, I feel like my brother read Speaker for the Dead and said the same thing because I was maybe going to read it and he was like, no, no. Yeah. Well, and just looking up reviews today before our conversation, I noticed there's definitely a consensus that this is Card's best book yeah. and that his work has, has gone downhill yeah. uh, since. I also came across comments from him to the effect that, you know, he deliberately wrote this book very clearly mm -hmm. and that literary people may oh, look yes. down on it for that reason. Yes. But actually, you know, we talked at the beginning of our conversation about genre. And my sense is that this is very much a genre book, even yeah. though it does various interesting things, as we've discussed. But I think he had higher ambitions for it or, or has higher ambitions for it or higher regard for it. I don't well, think I it think lives up to that. Well, I think it is allegorical for him in some way, right? And actually, in the introduction to my edition, it was saying that it had begun as a short story he wrote when he was very, very young, which I had not yes. known. And that then he kind of recapitulated it into this longer work. And it really does feel allegorical. I mean, there is something very kind of stark about it, right? I mean, there's not a lot of filler. Every scene, it sort of has a point. Right. I mean, also, we talked about this earlier, but Megan, you were saying you thought it was really interesting that Ender was so prescient and in some ways seems like an adult in a child's body. And I know we're supposed to buy that because he's this super battle hero. But his emotional maturity at particular moments drove me crazy. Oh, because he's so um, young. Yeah, yeah, I just yeah, felt yeah, like totally. I didn't buy this at all. And interestingly, though, it, this did not bother my children. They felt like I was underselling Ender. And, <laughs> yeah. and so in, in one sense, I wonder if that is sort of, again, Card understanding his audience and playing to the fantasy that you could have a child that would have all of this excellent judgment and wisdom as well as actual, you know, right. battle skills. I think that is how children think of themselves. And it's like one of the ways they feel wounded by adults, right? But the adults don't yes. see the 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 wealth of their understanding and inner life. So I think that probably is one of the successful qualities of the book, even though this time reading it, I was like, right, I remembered him being 15, whereas in fact he's eight right. for most right. of it. Right, right. I kept, I kept thinking, of, maybe it's all the discussion of Salinger lately, but I kept thinking of the Glass family, that oh, yeah. the, the Wiggins uh, were basically like the well, sci-fi Glass of, family. Yeah, they're, they're like, all geniuses. Right. And they kind of know they are and they talk about it. So there's some, there's some suspension of something there, right? We Can we to... spare a moment for Valentine and how yeah. insipid she is? It really drove me crazy. I mean, they're basically, she's the only girl in the book, right? I right. mean, there's a sort 
sort of there's Petra. Yeah, well, she barely is in the book, really. Right. In the end, and, she and gets she's almost broken. Not yeah, a that's right. She's the only <laughs> yeah. soldier broken. who fails. It's really yeah. Exactly, <laughs> terrific. The men, the men work out, but the women, women break. <laughs> right. So we have Ender's rotten mother off stage, and then right. we have his beautific sister, who then, at least in Ender's eyes, betrays him by giving the powers that be some insight into him that allows them to control him. Then he right. forgives her. As another one, she doesn't seem real. She was too, way too perfect. It's utterly desexualized because then you're supposed to imagine in the fable part at the end that Ender and Valentine go off and live together forever as if, like, neither right. of them would ever want to have any romantic relationship. It's it's weird, right? Yeah. There is something very childlike about that, right? That even when they are adults at the end of the book, they still seem prepubescent. Right. Yes. And their love for each other is so intense that if you admitted any sexuality into it at all, it become very uncomfortable. Right. No, exactly. Right. Exactly. She becomes close to Peter in a way that I never understood. I mean, do you think we're supposed to see that as a kind of meditation on ends justify the me? I mean, there was all this kind of political meditation happening in those sections, it seemed to me, right? That that she becomes close to Peter and does she becomes Demosthenes because Peter wants her to. And she basically writes these columns that say things she doesn't think. Because Peter evil has this larger right evil and right wing or, things, you know, that her father agrees with. Right. Um, and she's kind of horrified by that. But that's a really interesting part of the book where she could kind of come out even more. Um, but yeah, I agree with you, Emily. There's not enough of her as a. So real I hope character. some really strong actress plays her in the movie and redeems her, somehow it's, remakes um, her. Abigail Breslin. It. Oh, yeah. that's hopeful. I know. It's All Abigail right. Breslin. It's, in, it's interesting. Yeah, then maybe they'll do do better by her in the movie. I think they're going to be older, right, in the movie. I mean, if Abigail they're Breslin has got a, is a Valentine, I mean, they have to be older. It would be hard to watch a whole movie of Ender a is uh, and an eight-year-old. Yeah, Ender is Asa Butterfield, who's the kid right. from Hugo. Oh, right. Oh. He's pretty young. Yeah, he looks young. I, I have yeah. no idea how old he actually is. But, they but so Valentine they're making into like a much older. Right, because she's the older sister. Right, so. but she's not that much older no. than Ender. But here it seems like there'll be like a real difference between them. That's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Anything else from this book that we haven't discussed that you guys want to? Would you guys recommend it to steal the Dan Coyce ending question? I would recommend it to certain readers, but certainly not all. I don't in the end think it's a great book. I think it's an interesting book. It's a pretty fun read. I'm a fairly slow reader, so people who read as slowly as I do maybe won't enjoy it. But this is a, a book that some people could pick up and read in a day or two, I'm sure. Yeah, it's a fast. it was a fast read for me. I don't know if you're an adult whether I would say you need to read this book, but if you have, you know, a couple hours and you need to download something easy on your Kindle, <laughs> right. you know, go for it. I mean, if you're interested in the genre and in these questions, I think it's a book you should read because it occupies a certain, you know, it has a certain place in the in the culture. Right. It well, has enough moral complexity to it that it's really interesting to read with kids. Yeah. I would imagine that. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see whether the movie manages to make it even more of a phenomenon than it is, in right. which case I'm sure there will be more interest in the book, and in which right. case I would tell people, yeah, you know, take a look at it, because it's, right. it's worth finding out where this right. all comes from. I feel like you shed all this light into it, David, for me, about the you know the Mormon, the Book of Mormon story. Like, all that gives me much more insight into where this book came from in his consciousness. Too, well, and I do I think, yeah, Thank I mean, you. I, <laughs> you're welcome. Um, even and, if you have never read any, any single, single class. Right. That is the only perspective I 
I can bring to this book because is otherwise... Heidi also off your list in every other Laura The Dark is Rising. The Dark is Rising. Yeah, this, you should read that. That's good. This could get very embarrassing very quickly, I'm sure. Okay. The As, Book of Three? Yeah. No, oh, these wow. are all over you, my head. You have a treat. You have Charlotte's treat. waiting ahead of you. <laughs> Dr. Seuss? Well, I will... T- I will <laughs> Sorry. Even I have my limits. But I will... I will turn to all of these other books uh, as soon as we turn these recorders off, I'm sure. So, but for now, I will thank you both for joining me. Emily, thanks for talking with us from New Haven. Thanks for letting me make fun of you and being such a good sport about it. (laughs) (laughs) Always. And Megan, thanks for joining me here in New York. Uh, A pleasure. A pleasure. A program note. In our next audiobook club, we're discussing Bleeding Edge by Thomas Pynchon. Read it or listen to it and then join us for our discussion next month. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audio Book Club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateABC. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audio Book Club in the iTunes store. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Megan O'Rourke and Emily Baslon, I'm David Hyde. Thanks for listening.